Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the JLP Report podcast. Uh, we have a very special guest today who is uh, one of the founding fathers, so to speak, of our beautiful park. <laughs> Uh, he's the creative force behind uh, Discoveryland and many of its attractions from the uh, Visionarium to Orbitron and, of course, Space Mountain from the Earth to the Moon that everyone loves. Um, and uh, he's also worked on some fantastic projects in many parks around the world. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about that. So please welcome Mr. Tim Delaney. Hey, Hi, it's Tim. great to be here. Great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you guys. It's a, I'm also very excited to talk about one of my favorite parks and one of my favorite projects. Ah, Paris is just like, is like, I don't know. It, it, everything came together great and perfect there. So we were very excited. I'm very excited about it. Music to our ears. <laughs> uh, and I'm also joined today by Jeff from DLP Town Square. Hi, Jeff. Hello. And Kat from the DLP Report team. Hello. Hi, Kat. Hello. And Patrick, also from the DLP Report team. Hi, everyone. Who's not doing a quiz tonight, but um, maybe no, <laughs> I think we have much more interesting things to talk about. <laughs> uh, so let's get started. Uh, Tim, uh, tell us about the beginning. How did you get started at Walt Disney Imagineering? Uh, what was was some of the earliest things that you that you worked on for Disney? Well, actually, um, it's fast. It's kind of an interesting story. Even when I reflect back on it, um, I am a graduate of Art Center Co College of Design. And um, one of my instructors, um, after I had graduated for, I'd been out of college for about three years, and one of my instructors from school who taught rendering and uh, basically like watercolor uh, uh, architectural rendering, he called me, which is still kind of a mystery to me today, but he, he called me and said he worked at this place called Wed Enterprises. And, you know, wet enterprises. I'm like, yeah, okay. And he wanted to know if I was looking for a job, you know. And I, to be honest with you, at the time, I was not. I was actually, I had my own business. But um, about six months later, I was interested and they weren't. And then six months after that, we mutually got together. And then I discovered, you know, as I got into this, is that wet enterprises was Walt Disney's original uh, um, uh, design company. That he, he that he'd created specifically not to be under the studio system of uh, uh, from for making movies, and but it was his own personal design company that actually um, was dedicated to building this new Disneyland kind of park. So that started in the early '50s, and so um, they had basically continued. And at the time, and I eventually started there in June of 1976. Uh, I started there and it was, and I started in the graphics department. And uh, at the time uh, when I started there, there was obviously there was Disneyland and then there was uh, the Magic Kingdom or Walt Disney World. And so, um, you know, there were all these dreams about things to come, but basically this was a little design company. I mean, little, it had 450 people at the time uh, working there. Uh, but, you know, we were really focused primarily on Disneyland. And there was this rumor in the future um, that this project called Epcot was coming, which was going to be Walt Disney's original dream. And so I kind of, I, and I started it. And, um, and I, I want to tell you the thing that, that, that really impressed me the most about being there. When I started there, as I said, I was doing all their illustrations for the graphics department. Basically, the graphics department did all the signage and posters and corporate corporate signage. So like, for example, if Sunkissed, 
um, was going to come into Main Street, then what I would do is that I did all the illustrations showing their signage and what a, a point of view perspective looked like and um, basically meant to sell to the corporate sponsorships um, what it, what their presence would look like at Disneyland. So I, I did a lot of that. I also was working on the uh, the Starcade and the surrounding areas for this new Space Mountain project they were building at Disneyland. And that opened in 1977. So, you know, I was immediately thrust into this whole world and I, I was completely fascinated. I mean, here was an enormous company. I mean, believe me, it got a lot bigger, but a very big company that was just dedicated to one thing, you know, doing designing for Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Now, growing up, I grew up in Southern California. I was, I mean, Imagineering uh, today or a WED at that time was in Glendale. Uh, I was born and raised in Glendale. Uh, I mean, I don't have any idea how all this worked out, but somehow it just did. But as a kid, I was a huge, huge Disneyland fan. Um, I, I have such fond memories of my experiences there with my brother and my family. And, you know, we'd go once a year and it was really quite special, but it was always Disneyland, you know, it was not, you know, it isn't anything like what Disney is today. <laughs> Disneyland is, this, I mean, Disney is like this big giant, you know, huge entertainment complex. But at the time it was kind of like, wow, Disneyland, it was such a special thing. But when I started it, it, it wed. What I did is that I was so fascinated by this atmosphere and all this talent that surrounded us that I um, spent all of my spare time, whether it was a break or lunchtime, whatever it is, walking around the company and introducing myself to the designers. I mean, to every, I mean, everybody I could find. I was just like absorbing everything. And it, and at the time, you don't realize in your life, you don't realize the opportunities that you have, the, 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 the people you meet. You know, it, it takes time to re really reflect back on what all that is all about. You know? Well, the, working there were all the original designers, Herb Ryman, you know, John Hench, Mark Davis, Clyde Coates, Exitensio. This is like the who's who of theme park design. These people are all icons, they're all Disney legends, but they're also just kind of like older guys that you meet, you know, and, but they were all extraordinarily talented. I mean, artistically talented, everything about music and writing and art and everything on how to create a theme park was there before me. So as I mentioned, as time went on and I did my job, there were always these rumors of this upcoming Epcot project and people like Ray Bradbury were coming in to Imagineering or, well, uh, WED at the time. It didn't become Imagineering until the 80s. But uh, we're, we're going to call it Imagineering from now on, okay, because I'm just so used to that. Uh, but all these people were coming in, they were all working on this concept for this Walt's new dream. And so I would kind of like sniff around and see how I could get involved in this. Now, many of the artists who I mentioned, you know, whether it's Herbie or Sam McKim or uh, Clem Hall or any of these guys, most of these guys were traditional scenic motion picture artists. They weren't people who were doing a lot of kind of futuristic art. So, but that was my thing. And I'm gonna come back to that because we're gonna talk a little bit about Man in Space, which had a huge impact on my life when I was like five years old. But we'll come back to that. 
So I had heard about this futuristic, you know, Epcot was going to be composed of two parts, future world, as well as world showcase. World showcase was, you know, representat representations of, of um, countries all over the world. But, you know, it was going to be about future world. And, and, and Walt's dream, and I, I was a huge fan of, you know, Tomorrowland, the Tomorrowland, you know, when Walt Disney did his TV show, Disneyland, every week it was like, and tonight's episode is from Frontierland or Fantasyland or, you know, Adventureland. And I would be like, ah, okay. But when it said Tomorrowland, for some reason, I was like, my ears would perk up and you know, I would say like, yeah. And there was Man in Space and all that. Man in Space, man in, you know, man, in the, uh, man in the Moon and Mars and Beyond, plus Magic Highways, which was like, you know, visions of the future. So, you know, they, Wed was actually focusing on this futuristic um, uh, vision of, you know, what Epcot was going to be. So I kind of did my assessment, looked around, and I went, you know, I think I could help them on this. But I was locked in the graphics department. So for a year, I went home every night and worked on a new portfolio. And I did all these space paintings and futuristic architecture paintings and all that. So I went and <laughs> talked to my boss and I said, you know, I think I could do more for the company. Would you mind if I go show my portfolio to the management here at WED? And so he was like, okay, you know, I'm not sure he was happy, but it was okay, you know. And, and he, was, he, was, he was a good guy, you know, he, he was okay. He was okay, but he just had his own team, you know. And so you don't want to break up the team. So I made this appointment with John Hench and Marty Scalar and, brought in my portfolio and I'm showing this stuff and, and, and Marty kind of looks at me kind of funny and says, don't you already work here? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. But I said, you guys are working on this new project and I want to be part of it. And so I just want to show you if I can offer my services to you, that's what I want to do. So I was like, okay. So as it happened, um, about three weeks later, I went on vacation, came back, and my boss said, uh, you know, we've run out of work. We're going to have to let you go. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I went over to my cubicle, and I had been working on a whole series of travel posters for this new Space Mountain project. And I took them all off the wall, walked into the guy, the man who is the head of this Epcot project, a man by the name of John DeCure Jr., and I said, I've just been let go, but I think I can help you. So he's like, I don't know what we can do. So they gave me two weeks, seven pay, and I left. Okay. And I was at home and I was like, ah, you know, okay. A week later, I get a call and they say, come back, come back. So I was interviewed and I moved, I got moved upstairs next to Herbie Ryman. And from then on, I just continued working on ideas and concepts and you know, for that first, for that next year, literally next year, I used to sit and draw probably eight or nine hours a day for every day for almost a year. And they would, they would, I would go into meetings and they'd say, well, we have this idea for Epcot or, you know, give us a point of view. And I did all these really fast. I learned how to really paint fast. And, uh, and when I say paint, I'm like, literally, you go down to your special services department, you get a 30 by 40 inch piece of 
of, of uh, illustration board, I get my paints out, my brush out, and I start painting. It isn't like what I do now digitally, you know, on Photoshop. But anyway, so really painting stuff. So it was, you know, it was, it was, um, it was great. It, you know, I, and again, at the time, you never realize, okay, well, this is the way life is going to be. And now, sometimes when I talk about it, like now, I, I reflect back on when you hear, uh, when you see um, things that happen, you know, and, and, and how you can elevate your own career. I mean, I was just dedicated to this. I mean, I just wanted to be, this is what I wanted to do, you know, and, uh, and I found the right place to do it. Uh, I think my training at Art Center really helped me because they work you to death there. And so, you know, no one ever works eight hours a day. You're 18 hours a day, that's what you do. So I got used to this. And so I really, really loved it. And I made up stuff. And, and I will tell you right now that I still do this every day. I have a project of my own that is like overwhelmingly large that I'm working on. It just drives me crazy because it's, I can't get it, you know, I want to get it finished, but I never know how to finish a project. But uh, it, that really helped. I mean, um, uh, doing, doing, bringing visualizations to, to a subject was really something that I found really to be very important, which. Do you think it was easier back then to be, in contact with all those creative people at Walt Disney Imagineering compared to how it potentially is today. Absolutely. Uh, the company was much smaller. It was, people were more accessible. It, it sounds from what you're telling us. And it was, it was much different. It was a smaller company. You know, I mean, I remember one time uh, getting a call from the studio. I, I actually hadn't, this happens a few times, but getting a call from the studio, it's like, well, um, Ron Miller at the time was the president of the company. And I got a call like, uh, can you come and see Ron Miller at the studio tomorrow? You know, it's like, sure. You know, I don't know. What do you want to talk about? So they would just want to talk. It was, it was a, it, of all the things, and I'm glad you asked that question because it significantly was a, not so much, I mean, it wasn't a small company. It wasn't like four guys. It's like several it was a big company, but not compared to what it is like today. You know, it, it's not anything like that. You know, I mean, as I mentioned, just look at the comparison. When I started there, there were two parks, two Disney parks, two resorts. Okay? When I left, there were 11. And today there's one more, there's 12. And so the, in that, my, in my um, tenure there, you know, that kind of Disney decade thing that you heard about with Eisner used to talk about, was really something that, you know, we built nine theme, well, nine theme parks, five resorts. I mean, it, it, the, the company just exploded, you know, and, um, and so that was really, you know, a really a good, really a terrific thing. Um, but I, I, but I kind of was in, way in tune with it. What I wanted to mention to you, and I, I noticed in your outline, you talk about um, the Man in Space program and Walt Disney's interest in, you know, space travel and all of that. Well, as I mentioned, I was particularly um, fascinated by that whole genre, the, the outer space travel and science fiction and future and all of that. And so, and I was fascinated at a very, very, very early age. You know, I would just look, look at this and I was just mesmerized by, you know, what, what Man in Space was, what, um, you know, all three of the TV shows were, you know, Man in the Moon and Mars and Beyond. All three of them were... Um, so significant. And the thing that struck me was so much was following that a man like Walt Disney, and of course, you know, 
he, he got the right director producer, Ward Kimball, who later, years later, I worked with Ward Kimball on the Transportation Pavilion for Epcot. Um, he put together this team with Ward producing and Walt had this vision of like, let's, let's keep reaching out there. Let's go into outer space. And, or, but it, it was more about the future. He was a very much of a futurist. I mean, he was so well-rounded. There's never been able, anybody like Walt Disney, in my opinion. But he had this um, idea of like, let's show not so much science fiction and aliens and crazy, you know, what you see in most science fiction today. But it was really, as Ward would say, this is science fact. And, the, and what struck me the most, even at an early age, that here was somebody who had an idea. Now, this is something to really pay attention to. He has really had an idea, put it into a form, whether it could be through illustration, artwork, writing stories, doing film, creating animation, whatever it is, took an idea and gave it a vision. And this is this whole visionary aspect of what I think the Disney company is really strong about that we carried through and primarily was the foundation of everything we, that I did in Discoveryland is to focus on visions and visionaries. So when I, when I thought about that, you know, and again, I don't know, I just had always been able to draw. So I used to draw spaceships and do all of that stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and I loved it. I was, I looked at, I watched every science fiction movie that was ever made, some of the good ones, some of the bad ones, whatever they were, because people were speculating about what the future could be. And once you actually bring something together where it says, here is an image, here is a vision of what this, of, of what this could be. It is amazing when people see something, how much they believe in it and how, how, how it can be, become a reality once they end up learning, you know, once you see it, you almost can believe it, you know, it's a little bit from different than what Jules Verne said, but, <laughs> but in my opinion, once you see it, you can believe it, you know, that's, that's what you need to do. And you have to be very careful about what, what those things are. So, so that was a really big thing for me. So that's why I kind of got into it. And, and that was my earliest kind of connection with, with Walt Disney and the Walt Disney company. Um, and I wasn't, you know, didn't end up being like a, a, a Disney fanatic or anything, but it was just like, there was kind of a magnetic pull to that kind of philosophy. And it was embodied in all of what Imagineering was at that time. So, you know, it was kind of like I connected and, and things worked out really well. Yeah, I went back and watched some of the Man in Space, uh, a few bits of Disneyland actually over the weekend. And even now, just watching them, you are completely captivated. You can tell even from the opening broadcast of Disneyland, where I think in the Tomorrowland section, they're talking about um, atomic energy, things like that. Every, everything he did, that was very much where his passion was firing. That's what I sort of got from it. I mean, yes, he loved the past with Frontierland, but then when he was talking about the future, that was a sort of, every time you watch it, there's a glow in his eyes. It's quite... <laughs> It's quite you're inspiring right. to watch, even now. Yeah, it, it is. And you're exactly right. And I, that's what I think is so extraordinary. I mean, one of the things that I loved about it is like the, the Man in Space one, the first one, the animation part of it, where they actually show the, the rocket going out there, which incidentally, you know, having Werner, Werner von Braun and Willie Lay and some of the other scientists, part of that television show really added credibility to it. So then what they summarized at the end of that animation segment, first of all, I thought that the whole concept of a main vessel, I mean, a, a main rocket shooting like, you know, the people part up, I thought was is brilliant. I think that's what they should do today. You know, I mean, the idea mm -hmm. that we built the space shuttle, which is 
not only the truck that carries all the hardware, but you also had to people have people in it. If you just took the people up in one thing that's smaller and a, a kind of like a train that goes over here that loads the stuff up there, then you don't have all that weight you have to lift. And and I just thought that was brilliant, you know. Um, and and uh, and so so I just thought everything about it was terrific. I also love the style of the animation. It's very much, if you're familiar with the old Max Fleischer 1940s Superman comic, uh, cartoons, you know, the, uh, the film, the animation cartoons, they have this kind of almost deco style to them, very, very simplified and all that. And what, what that animation segment did was it focused on the reality of what something could be. And it wasn't all kind of, there was an artificial drama to it. And there was kind of a, and it ended on a very, very, um, heroic kind of crescendo as the music comes comes back in, and you're kind of uplifted by this. You know, let me let me give you an insight to something that I <laughs> that uh, I don't know. Some Disney fans may dislike this, but I don't care. You'll, you'll understand why I, I'm going to say what I'm going to say. When Disneyland opened, they had you know Mission to the Moon, and you and I love that whole show where you you know you, you went into this chamber. And it was, you're, you're sitting in a circle around a screen that's on the floor and on the ceiling, you know, and, you know, this is going to take, or this, this trip is going to take us to the moon. And so, you know, you look at the lower screen and we launch up and you see Disneyland going off in the distance and it talks about smog in Los Angeles. And I was like, okay, this is real. And then we head to the moon, we head to the moon and we're heading to the moon and we're telling you this story about you know, this is man's great pursuit of going off to the moon. And, and this is basically, basically it was a lot based on, you know, the, the mission to the moon ride that part of that uh, man in space program. And then here's where the storytelling really becomes magical. We come to the moon, we go to the backside of the moon, right? And they, you know, it's like never see the backside of the moon. It's always facing away from earth. It's on the dark side. You can't see anything there. And they shoot these rockets out. And these rockets are like flares and it hits the backside of the moon. And as it does, it explodes with lighting and you see all of these shadows and they're mostly shadows of craters. But then you see kind of a very lin linear kind of structure. And the storyteller says, could this have been some long ago civilization? And you're like, yeah, could have been, yeah. It doesn't say it is. And it doesn't say it's structures, it's not buildings, but it poses the question. It poses the question of hope. So then we kind of go around the moon and then we fly back to earth, okay? So once, <laughs> so once we landed on the moon in 1969, we couldn't go to flight to the moon anymore, so they were gonna go to Mars. Okay, so now it became mission to Mars. Go to the same attraction, the same, same you know, configuration, but change the show. And in that particular one, we do this like magic voodoo on your way to the Mars thing, which you know you can't do quickly. You have to take months to do. So then we get to Mars, and suddenly we go to Mars, and it's a big giant storm, and things are flashing all over the place, and there's big emergency, and we have to race back to Earth. So I'm racing back to Earth, and as I'm walking out of the theater, I'm like, "What the heck did we go to Mars for? I don't want to go there." Let's go back to the moon. That was a lot more fun. You know, that was like speculation <laughs> and dream and hope and, and fantasy and things that really, you know, and that's what they were more like. Now, how the other show got done, who did it, I, I really don't know. I, and I, that's not my, that, 
I, I don't, that was done long ago. So, but I, I just think, you know, when you create things, you have, you, you, you not, you cannot necessarily say, well, this is the way it's going to be. But, but when you speculate, I think it's very important. And this is really the key to what Disney's all about. They're about storytelling and it's really about providing some level of hope or, you know, something that encourages people to go forward, which is something today I think we need more of. And um, so, but this is, this was his ideology long ago. And I think that that's, that kind of like, I was, you know, you can sugarcoat it, you can do whatever you want and you can be critical of what um, uh, people think about Disney and all that. But in terms of the fundamental storytelling process, it was really based on positive and, and encouraging points of view that I think were really kind of, it's embodied in the parks and I think it's embodied in every, most of the things they do. And it's funny because you talk about, you know, going back to the moon. And I think for a lot of Disneyland Paris fans, it's, it's what they want to do in Discoveryland. And we'll talk that we'll talk about that later in our Discoveryland <laughs> section. But I think it is kind of funny that this is, we'll get into that. <laughs> this has happened before then, because, you know, now we're going to a galaxy far, far away. And people are like, actually, the moon was pretty interesting. Um <laughs> but I mean, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I personally think I'm one who's all for space uh, exploration robotically. I'm not sure going into space is like the most fun thing in the world. I mean, it, it is a very hostile place. So you have to really know what you're doing. Okay. Mm -hmm. you, you really don't. But um, anyway, that's, but I think that there's always that, it's always the final frontier kind of quest thing. So we've already sort of touched a little bit on Man in Space and how it inspired Discoveryland. Um, I think it's useful for people who maybe haven't seen it to say that from the Earth to the Moon is is actually in there. It's sort of the very first thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that this dream of, of going out there was, it's really kind of the ultimate uh, representation of what science, what, what, what is possible from human beings' point of view and what science is, what, what it can be. And, um, you know, and I think that that's, that's an inspirational thread that I think that, um, that actually has a tendency, it, it works, you know. Um, when you think about, I mean, I live in California here, so we have, you know, between Mount Wilson, Caltech, and JPL, and all of the, you know, I mean, look, at, look what's happened this week, you know, with us landing a rope, a, a um, drone, and a helicopter on Mars. I mean, I mean, that's, look at the attention it gets. It's pretty spectacular. And I love that. I mean, I, I don't want anybody, I mean, I, I can't, I shouldn't say it. I don't want to go to Mars, but I'm, I'm glad robots can, you know. Yeah. Is that your, is that a Space Mountain cup? Ben's drinking from a Space Mountain mug, I think. Yes, yes, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, I thought I would bring my uh, Space Mountain cup, uh, the original one. Ah, ah. There you go. We've got twins going on here. Oh, yours is a little bit different, or maybe you washed it more. The red, mine is red. <laughs> this is not. This is not great for an audio podcast. But yeah, we're, you know, we're I, showing us Space Mountain cups. <laughs> oh, you know what? I could show. Oh, well, okay. I could show you something really interesting if you give me two seconds. Of course. How many times have you seen that? A million times. This is no the, the white. The white. I haven't the seen the original it. artwork. Oh my goodness. Ah. I found it in my portfolio. And I found it in my one of my files. Oh wow. And wow. I hand painted wow. I hand painted this. And then That's they copied awesome. it. That's amazing. <laughs> Where did the red come in? Because we often see the red now a lot more, right? 
I think yeah. that's on all the merchandise they've done recently as well. Yeah. I don't know. They probably said they put the red in it, so they said, "Oh, that's not yours." But it's, <laughs> can't it's give you credit works. for it anymore. <laughs> Yeah. I've been rewatching the Imagineering story, um, and when they talk about the creation of Epcot, it sounds like such madness. Like people were scrambling, all the teams. There was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of you know pressure to open. Um, how how did you live through this? And then could you tell us about the pavilions that you worked on? <laughs> well, let me tell you about it. It was the 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 scope of what Epcot was all about was so massive. Uh, And we had such a small, tiny, tiny creative team working on it that no one had any idea what we were doing. We had no idea what we were doing. Okay, I'm going to tell you that right now. So as a result, we just ended up doing it. Okay, and I know that doesn't make any sense, but believe me that it really does make a lot of sense. You know, if you said... If you came to me today and said, well, we had this idea about a, um, uh, an attraction, we have to invent a ride system that goes into this big gigantic ball. Or we have another ride, which is in one of the largest pavilions we've ever made, where we're going to have vehicles that hold 100 people that move you through this energy pavilion. Or we're going to build uh, the world's largest self-contained saltwater tank in the world. Or, and you're like, uh, yeah, and how long do we have to do that? I mean... We had to invent all this stuff. And sometimes when you don't know, you don't know what can't be done, then you end up doing it. And it, it, you know, they're always tossing you that, like, you know, I mean, one of my favorite quotes from Walt was, and and this is, this embodies Epcot perfectly. Walt used to say, well, it's kind of fun to do the impossible. And that's what Epcot was all about. And I think that um, when you think about it, I mean, I, I would have never put that ride you know, that imagine it, imagine this, a string of pearls, okay, long string of pearls that you're going to put into an attraction that has to go up, up a lift, and then down around like this, and then exit back down around, and it has to be one continuous chain. Well, you can probably imagine how difficult that would be, because now you're pulling something up, and then you have to get it so that now it wants to fall down. And so you have to, so on one hand, you're pulling it up and the other hand, breaking it and you have to try and manage that whole thing. But you know what, our engineer, the Imagineers, you know, engineers at Imagineering, um, they're pretty smart guys who have the right spirit, you know? And I think that that's, that's something that, uh, that, that people really, I think I wanna give credit to all the Imagineers that are there. You know, it's, it's an extraordinary place And I will say that, let me just take you to today. I do a lot of work. I mean, you know, I've been away from Disney for 10 years, um, you know, not working in Imagineering, but basically in my own business. And I have found that, you know, and I'm going to spin off a little bit here. So pull me back in when we want to get back on this. But but I have a lot of people who actually um, have dreams of wanting to be Disney. Like, oh, we want to be Disney. We want to be Disney. We want all those Disney people. You know, we want all those crowds that come. Some of them, on a rare occasion, even have the money to do it. But I will tell you what they don't have. They don't have the will that it takes. And the will is, which it means people who can do it, people who are dedicated to do it, people who are not willing to compromise, not give up. I mean, theme parks, building a theme park is the proverbial pushing it. I mean, you heard this, if you heard, well, I've said this in the past, which you can 
here on Shoot the Moon, but I talk about pushing, basically pushing a ton of bricks up a hill. That's how theme parks are. You know, it's, it looks like, ah, it's easy. It's fun. You know, it's not, you know, it's done. It's, and if it's, and if it's seamless and, and it's easy at the end, then you're successful. But getting there, it's a very, very complex process to do things. So um, I would say the Epcot project, the difficulty and the challenges on that were just, you know, they drove a stake in the ground, said, this is what we're going to do. And I think having, having this under the umbrella of being Walt's dream really kind of drove every, everything forward. Now, when I started doing all these concepts, I mean, I, would did, I did point of view renderings. I did, um, uh, you know, basically placemaking. And placemaking is a little easier when you have an old Western town or a jungle scene or whatever, but contemporary things are a little more challenging, but still just as exciting as far as I was concerned. So I essentially worked on a little bit of everything. I mean, they would like give us this point of view or, you know, I designed the future city for the transportation pavilion or, um, oh my God, it's just, I mean, I did interior render to the land pavilion. I, um, I don't know. I did. I, I don't know. They were just. I. I don't know. They were. They have about. A, I mean, at that time, I was literally painting stuff. So, so they were. They have about a thousand paintings of mine sitting in their warrant file. So, and I did outer space paintings, and you know, I mean, it, I, I don't know. It was just something I did. I just loved it. I was like, I'm sitting here. I. I go down to the warehouse. I pick up my paints and brushes. I get my boards, and I just start. And then, and then the, the people who are in charge are coming like, yes, 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 no, yes, yes, no, no. The big breakthrough I will tell you is that when I worked on um, with uh, John, uh, a, a man by the name, who was the father of the man who was actually in charge, um, John DeCure Sr. John DeCure Sr. is probably the most, um, one of the most famous uh, art directors in Hollywood. Uh, he's the only guy who built, who <laughs> he's the only man who broke 20th Century Fox twice. He broke them. He was the art director for Cleopatra, and he was the art director for um, Hello Dolly. So when he when he did Hello Dolly, they it, it, the set was so expensive they couldn't even tear it down. But what happens? They had to sell off part of Twentieth uh, Century Fox, right? And that's how you have Century City today in Los Angeles. <laughs> not many people know that. And now, ironically, Disney now owns 20th Century Fox. But, um, but anyway, so John DeCure Sr. was asked to do a space pavilion. And uh, the idea was going to be that it was going to be this gigantic ball and it had all these gantries all around it. And so he was going to make the presentation. John DeCure Sr. was going to make the presentation to this corporate group that they brought in. And they were always looking for corporate sponsorships because they needed someone to help underwrite this Epcot project. So, so I, I found out that I was one of three people to do this illustration. Um, they, they generally would ask two or three people to do the same work just to kind of see who would come out in, in front. So um, anyway, I did this illustration. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever seen this, the one with the big ball and it's got the vertical line? Okay, and it's got um, these gantries all around it. And the painting's about 50 inches across, right? It's big. I mean, it's, because uh, when you make presentations like in our conference rooms, you have to do big artwork, right? If, 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 you, if you do something that's like, you know, 24 inches across, 
by the time you pin it to the wall, it looks like a postage stamp. So you want to sell big ideas with big illustrations. So I did this big thing. And, um, and I, I have to say that that probably, I mean, it was kind of fun to do. Um, but it was, it, it was, it really had a big impact on everybody. You know, it was, it was like after that, uh, you know, I, I gave it to the people who go to Mount Fit. I wasn't doing presentations at the time. Um, but, um, you know, after that, Marty Escalar came and sat down in my office and said, hey, we really liked what you did. And he gave me a raise. And so, you know, I mean, it was good. You kind of like, it's nice to get acknowledged. And it was, um, you know, it was kind of fun to do. And it was big and crazy. And Johnny Kira was big and crazy. And so, you know, I worked on that. And then, um, then I did a whole series of paintings for the transportation pavilion for the post show. The post show is actually um, a, um, a uh, kind of like how cars are designed. And, you know, the ride was kind of a collection, kind of a wacky word, Kimball kind of, you know, the history of the wheel and, you know, it's kind of nuts. But the ending part was really, you know, the future of how cars could be designed and built. And it was not only cars, it was all about transportation, monorails, trains, boats, you know, it was the whole thing. And uh, when, um, when Epcot opened, all, all those stories, all those, uh, those backstories for the attraction and all the pavilions really came together. And I think a lot of people are very nostalgic of those times because there was a real vision. And even if, you know, even at the, at the time, like you said, you weren't completely aware of what was going on in the end, it really came together really well. And um, recently it sounds like, you know, corporate sponsors have gone out the window and now, um, you know, characters and IP and, and, you know, films and all that stuff that Disney owns needs to be inserted in every attraction. And I think it's been, it's a big debate, you know, especially for guests and fan, like, you know, what to do with the Epcot Pavilion, for example, at Living Seas now, you know, Finding Nemo has moved in. And what do you think of this trends? Is this inevitable? Is this the only way that Epcot can survive? Or do you think there's still room for, for some original stories in the parks? Well, um, I think it's an interesting development they're going through. And, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of disqualify myself for giving an official opinion because I'm not in the middle of what they're doing there anymore. On the outside, on the outside looking at it, I, um, there's certain things that I'm not, um, I'm not crazy about. Um, let me see if I can take this in order. I will tell you that every time I would go back to Epcot, and the last time I was there, it's been two years ago because of COVID, not traveling and all that. Every time I walk into Epcot, it reminds me of like the time when I worked on it and the energy and the excitement about what Epcot was going to be. I mean, I, I can't, it's, it's a very nostalgic kind of feel. All right, it's great. Okay, part two of that is I know that the Walt Disney Company is marketing and brand driven. So they have to put their overlay on all of the attractions. And I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I actually think that, you know, having Disney part, have, having the Disney, the brand, the products, the characters involved in all their attractions are, is probably a, is, is probably a really good thing. You know I mean? It's, it's a good thing. The issue is how it's executed, right? I think if you were talking about if, uh, I'm not going to go down this path and tell, tell you what, they're, what they should have done. I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to tell you a process 
And if you said, all right, let's let's do a formula here. Let's look at Epcot Center, which is all about the future, you know, future thing here. And we want to give it an overlay. Shall we give it an overlay of, um, should we give it an overlay of Pirates of the Caribbean? Eh, no. Shall we give it an overlay of pick your own thing? You know, should it be a princess park? Uh, probably not. Could it be Marvel? Uh, Marvel. Okay, we could do Marvel. So, so let's address, this is what I would do. I would say, let's take a subject and let's say uh, the energy pavilion and you want to give it an overlay of Marvel. Well, well, what would we do? What, what in the Marvel universe would connect to something that relates to energy as a storytelling device? Okay. What in the imagination pavilion in the Disney universe or I don't know, Marvel or whatever, you know, what connects that? So I would actually link some of the old with the new, right? Um, so that's kind of how I, how I would look. Now, there've been some recent developments that you may have read about, this thing called Disney Plus. And there are five pillars to Disney Plus, right? There's Disney, there's Star Wars, there's Marvel, there's um, Pixar. And then the one that is like National Geographic. <laughs> okay, if I was running Disney and I wanted to have an overlay of National Geographic, where would I put it? Hmm, maybe the Living Seas Pavilion, maybe Animal Kingdom. If you watch National Geographic these days, they have a very different kind of storytelling that goes on. They're really talking about things that I think interests um, a younger audience about climate, uh, resources, weather, um, you know, how we're gonna save our planet. I mean, I think there's an audience out there that's coming. And that's kind of the overall theme of what National Geographic's all about. Well, isn't that what Epcot's all about? All about? So, I mean, again, I'm not there I have spoken to some people there about it, but you know, I, I don't know who's making the decision. So I, and I'm not qualified, you know, I'm sure they've got a whole bunch of really smart people there. I'm sure they'll figure it out. But from the outside, I would see how I could connect these things. And the reason I would do that is because I don't, I think that the Magic Kingdom should have an identity. I think Animal, uh, the studio should have its own identity. Certainly, Animal Kingdom has its own identity, and I think I think Epcot and World Showcase should also have their own identity. Now, there may be some overlays, but I wouldn't just like throw everything out and say, "Oh, it's now going to be, you know, some form of Tomorrowland." I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, that's that's all I can say. I, that's the way I would look at it. Uh, Kat, you had a question about the Living Seas. Yeah, just in um, general with connecting with like the nature of National Geographic with the Living Seas, would you be able to go into a little bit more detail on the development? That's actually my favorite pavilion like of any <laughs> Disney park ever. So I, well, I love well, it. The original team that worked on it, um, we have, we had a fantastic, we wanted to grow the pavilion. Um, between the Land Pavilion and the Living Seas Pavilion is a big, huge, empty, vacant lot. And uh, we had an idea that would be really, uh, the guy who is our leading our team is uh, Kim Murphy is his name. And Kim says, hey, we should do undersea explorations and all that. Um, 
so we had an idea for, you know, a, at the time, a simulator kind of ride. This is many years ago. Uh, but you actually left, you know, you left the sea base. You went down a corridor and you went into this kind of mysterious, you know, subsea base that where we could simulate anything, you know. And, um, and so, you know, I, I think that would have been really terrific because I think that there are people who are interested in the exploration of this. As I mentioned to you before on our advisory board, you know, we have Dr. Robert Ballard. I've been working with Ballard for 35 years. Matter of fact, Bob called me about an hour ago. I'm working on his research vessel, the Nautilus. And um, Bob, you know, I mean, I, I, he called me about 12 years ago and said, I, somebody just gave me an East European spy ship and we're gonna convert it to a research vessel. It's a 250 foot long East German military ship, some sort. Anyway, so, so Bob, you know, found, you know, Bob, Bob was part of our advisory board. This is before he discovered Titanic in 85. And so we had a couple of meetings with the upper management of Disney and he was like, Hey, listen, you know, give me, give me some gas money and uh, we'll take you, you know, I'll give you all the credit for, you know, uh, media credit for Titanic, but they passed on it. But, um, but Bob is a really dynamic guy and, and, and his concept of exploration under the seas, it, it, you know, I, I frankly suggested, you know, Disney should put out a whole series, just like the Imagineering series on, on National Geographic Explorers. I mean, these are phenomenal people. You know, I mean, you sit there and I'm talking to a guy who's like, yeah, my expertise is, um, you know, I do cave, you know, I do cave diving. And I'm like, my heart starts like, palpitating, you know, and he, he, and I'm like, I'm like, I can't even speak. I, the idea of being deep underwater inside a cave, I couldn't do it. But these are fantastic people. And Dr. Ballard is one of the finest storytellers I have ever encountered. I mean, when he tells you the story of how they discovered Titanic, it is so good that when I did an exhibit for him at the Mystic Aquarium, I said, Bob, I've heard his story. He, he does a lot of speaking engagements. You know, he'll speak to 2000, you know, insurance agents someplace. And he'll tell the story of the discovery of Titanic. And I said, someday we're going to film that. So I did this Titanic exhibit for him about 10 years ago. And it was ended up being fantastic. We shot the whole, we shot this whole presentation of him giving the speech of finding the Titanic. We talked earlier about the, the space pavilion in Epcot. Obviously that unfortunately didn't get built, but was there any parts of, that that you took and sort of brought to discovery land and obviously that's i think that's where you went next right let's look at it chronologically because the world changed for disney in 84 right um what happened is that post epcot epcot i mean in terms of these days epcot ran ran over budget was minuscule amount but it put the there was some little bit of jeopardy for the walt disney company to that so um, the company made, and you can read it in all the books and I don't need to go into it, but the company decided to make a, a management change. And so they brought in, um, you know, what I consider to be an A-team, a, a world-class A-team of entertainment executives. It started with Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, um, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and there was a whole group, they were upper, you know, Bill Mechanic, uh, uh, Rich Frank. I mean, there's a whole group of people that came in from various locations. And so, so what happened is that I, when they came in, basically I was working and we were just finishing the Living Seas Pavilion. But I, so I was dealing with Michael and Jeff, uh, excuse me, uh, Michael and Frank a lot. And, and I was so impressed 
um, with the, the entity called Michael Eisner, Frank Wells. I mean, each one had their own values, but, but Michael and Frank, you know, Michael and Frank, Michael and Frank. And it was a, it was a kind of the perfect yin yang kind of partnership. So what they did is when they came into the company, they were trying to like, you know, figure out how to make this company really work and really how to manage all their assets and take their assets and exploit them in a, in a positive sense of the word exploit. And, but also, um, you know, um, use them to really help grow the company. And so these guys were real pros. And so at the time they, they, they lucked out in terms of a technological advancement, which was called video cassettes, and also the Disney tradition of, of reissuing all their animated films every seven years. So they kind of married that together and the video business took off and the company just went crazy. Um, and so um, the other part is that they, it took them about a year to get the company kind of established and kind of build offices and just the logistics of this. And for some reason, Michael wanted to bring um, the company up to, you know, the 20th century. I mean, he just really wanted to waken this giant up. And all of us who worked for the company felt exactly the same way. There's so many assets. And if you remember correctly, when Disney was in trouble, there was a group that actually wanted to buy Disney and split up all the parts, sell off Walt Disney World, sell off the library. I mean, it was it was really scary. And then, you know, the Bass family came in, bought the stock, you know, rejuvenated the stock, and they took off. And so Michael was always like, calling us going, hey, I got somebody who wants to come in, you know, we're, can, Tim, can you do a presentation of Michael Jackson? Can you do uh, Eddie Murphy's coming in and, and Robin Williams? And, you know, it was like, you know, celebrity week, you know, Chevy Chase wants to come and see what you guys are doing. And the funny thing about this, and I'm not bringing up just because celebrity, celebrity, it's not that at all, but uh, there's something that's really important to talk about here is that when, in, when you're in Hollywood, all these movie stars end up going to like studios. And so they kind of have their sway there. And I've seen people in the studio and they, they kind of float above a cloud and all that. However, I will tell you something that's really important and people not, people don't, well, I'm gonna talk about my particular experience here. When Michael Eisner would call, um, you know, uh, um, John Landis, okay, and he'd say, hey, I want you to do a project for you. We go over to Imagineering, they'll take you on a tour. And every time somebody would come in, they would be in the lobby, I'd go down the lobby and I'd, you know, meet them or, and, and, or other people. You know, there's a whole bunch of Imagineers that they would, you know, offer to take you on a tour. And you can't get into Imagineering. You cannot. I mean, it's just no one, I mean, I, well, I can get in, but I mean, I can't go see anything. I can go into the cafeteria, but I can't go see anything because uh, it's very secretive. So people would come in and they would like have this very humble feel to themselves. You know, it's like, wow, you know, I'm here. You know, this is really special. And I remember one time, you know, Chevy Chase came in and, and took him on a tour. And then at the time they were working on the simulators for the Star Tours. And so then I left and somebody else took over and then I ran into them just as he was leaving and he walks down the hallway and he's holding in his hand this certificate. It's a piece of paper, a certificate. And he's just kind of like walking around, but he's holding this like it's like, I don't know, holy grail. So I kind of like, cause you always expect these guys to kind of like have some kind of smart ass active, you know, attitude. But he goes, yeah, I just wrote that simulator. And the guy who was managing the whole project is a good friend of mine by the name of Doug LeBlanc. 
And Doug LeBlanc, if you rode the simulator in the simulator building, they were testing it all out. It was all part of the testing. It was long before Star Tours opened, but they had film shot in there and they were making it work and all that. So anybody who would survive <laughs> the run there, they'd give them a certificate. And so like Chevy Chase is walking out, like I go, so what are you going to do with that? You know, fold it up or, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm trying to be a smart ass, you know. I, and he like looks at me like, no. I got this because I, you know, I mean, the guy was sincere. He was really sincere. And you realize that this is part of this magic of behind the magic of Imagineering is that people would, would when they'd come in there, they were like, this was like, they know that you just can't get in. This is a different thing. And it's not their deal. They're, and they're not the star of the show. They're just like anybody else. And there's this kind of gee whiz attitude that takes place there. Um, Michael Jackson was the same way. You know, he, I, they, Michael Eisner would call him and say, look, uh, Michael Jackson's coming over. Will you show him the Living Seas Pavilion? And because the only project going in the company that was actively being built, because this was, because Epcot opened in 82, we opened the Seas Pavilion in 85, January of 85. So we were, I was building this thing and there was nothing else in the company going on. They were just, they were so committed to this thing. So I ended up doing a presentation to Michael's son, you know, because he had a book report to do. And so I gave him something on the Living Seas Pavilion. So anyway, so we showed Michael Jackson and, you know, Michael Jackson during the presentation, he just walked out of his seat and walked up to one of the illustrations I had done, which was like one of the ones you see in the intake module with a submarine in. And he goes, can I ride in that submarine? I'm like, sure, you can ride in that submarine, whatever you want to do. But it was, but it's more, the point I'm trying to make is that there was something unique and that it, it kind of overwhelms people. And so when you work on all these projects, the sum total of everything that you, you learn, you bring to the next project. And the, and, the, and the idea of actually being able to, you know, it's like, you know, this new administration, Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, you know, the first thing they did, you know, they wanted to go to Walt Disney World and build hotels. And they said, now we need to expand. So we want to build a park in, in Europe. So I'm like, sign me up. Tony Baxter was in charge. I went to Tony. I'm sign me up. I was like, I'm ready to go. And so they did not know exactly where it was going to be. They were they were like going back and forth between whether it was going to be in South in Spain or whether they're going to do you know build it in, in Paris. Paris being more uh, centrally located was really kind of the strategic decision that they ended up making. So I'm like, yeah, sign me up, sign me up. And so. The attitude that took place about that, once they made the decision, this is their, you know, this takes a long time to get through uh, the history of their development and all that stuff, but we won't go into that. We're just going to talk about the creative side. And so the idea was um, you work with a team on everything you talk, uh, you create. I mean, I've not mentioned it yet, but believe me, I, I go out of my way to talk about the number of people and the teams that you have and the, the qualify, I mean, the, the incredible, you know, if you, if you, if you go into your selecting your team, you know, you want architects and engineers and lighting people, interior design people and model builders and all that. And you, you have the choice to pick some of the best people in the world in their particular discipline. And it's, 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 it makes your life a lot easier is not only are they good, but they're also dedicated to the same cause you were dedicated to. And that's really, I think, really important. So, um, but doing the research and saying, well, we're gonna go to France and I was gonna do Tomorrowland or whatever Tomorrowland was. You also work with your own creative team. And there were, Tony was kind of like our lead executive 
designer there. But then we had five other producers. You had Eddie Sato for Main Street, Tom Morris for Fantasyland, Jeff, uh, Jeff Burke for Frontierland, and Chris Teets for Adventureland, and I did Scarland. So we do a lot of story sessions and we work. And I think the general idea, there's this whole kind of collection of things that, that what you really want to do is you want to make sure that um, you have two presents when you go to a place. One is going to be, what is the Disney presence? And what is and the second one's going to be, what is your local pres presence going to be? Meaning if we're going to go to Europe, then we better have, you know, we just don't rubber stamp something that works in Anaheim isn't going to work in any other place. So that's, really kind of the interesting development and how you and how you create the story base and the foundation for what your attractions are going to be all about. So the key was, and the big epiphany for me was, I almost kind of went to the back to the very, very beginning of understanding what the parks really do when you see the lands. And you could look at the television show, you could look at the parks and how they're laid out. And here was my big epiphany. When you let's pick any one of them, and you can say Fantasyland. Okay, Fantasyland has a French castle. It has an Italian story with um, Pinocchio. It has uh, basically all of them are in a land under the under the emotional category of Fantasyland. Okay, so they're mostly Western European stories. And so what you end up seeing is that it's more of a collection. So then you go to Adventureland. And Adventureland is part Caribbean, part North African. Essentially what they are is exotic ports. And that's what defined um, Adventureland. Frontierland, you could do the same thing. You know, it gets part of the Northwest. It's part of the Southwest. It's part of, you know, Indian lore. It's part of... Cowboys, it's part of the old West. It's all that American kind of stuff. So my big breakthrough on this was going to be like, well, if we're going to do Tomorrowland, why are we doing one Tomorrowland? You know, um, tomorrow, every time you build a Tomorrowland, you know, once it gets built, it's kind of yesterday, yesterday land anyway. So the idea is let's do a collection. You know, this kind of goes back to the notes, Jeff, that you put out there that, you know, like, how does this, how does this work? How does this work? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what you do is in order to mitigate some of these problems of going at a date, what you end up doing is saying like, well, let's, you know, everybody's had a vision of the future, you know, whether it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure that if I went into those cave paintings in the south of France and I saw, you know, the handprints up there where somebody scribed and it shows them killing a mastodon and all that. Well, that's kind of a vision of their future. It's kind of a, a recording of what they've done, but it's also a vision of their future. So everybody has, you know, there's that future. And then there's, I'm sure somebody in the Middle Ages had a vision of the future, but most specifically in how do we actually create something that is a courtesy to the European culture that Walt Disney was part of, he was part of, in Walt, you know, in World War II. How do we create this? So there was kind of an H.G. Wells future and there's a Jules Verne future and there's probably a Leonardo da Vinci future and, and, um, and, oh, did I, oh, oh, okay. Um, sorry. Um, there's kind of a Jules Verne future, H.G. Uh, Wells future, uh, Leonardo da Vinci future. To a certain extent, there's a George Lucas future. And we could actually, if you want to really stretch the theme, that could be a Michael Jackson future too, you know. So um, that's one of the reasons why we said, look, let's, let's create something here that is actually 
a grouping of these things. And let's take the theme of visionaries. And so, I mean, it, it just works, you know, it works, it works from a story point of view, it works from a theming point of view, from a placemaking point of view, as well as a, as a, um, you know, um, a guide to your architectural look, you know, and that's, and so what you do is by doing a collection of these things, and taking them at their high point of most high point of what they're kind of the ultimate of what Jules Verne would have done, or HGLs would have done, or other people like that, then then it, it allows you to that flexibility, and it isn't just one one story you're trying to tell. And essentially, that is the basis of what we did. And so the, then the idea is, how do you write the story to make what what represents Jules Verne the most? What represents HGL? Well, HGL is a time machine. So by contract, we had to do, the French wanted a story about France. They suggested circle vision, which circle vision has a life cycle. It lasts about five years. But the idea is, we came up with an idea, and I think Tony Baxter had, you know, threw this out there. And how do you take circle vision and turn it into an attraction? We put a robot in the middle of it and you turn it into a whole big time machine. Yeah. And that's how these things kind of kick off. You know, you're like, well, time machine, yeah. You know, so what does the building look like? What's the setting look like? How do you set the pre-show up? How do you do a post-show? How do you do all that? And so and that's talking, where the fun part is. Talking about the buildings, was it hard to, uh, just as, as we still on sort of like the global vision for Discoveryland, was it hard to make it all work because you have sort of, you know, Visionarium, Orbitron, Space Mountain, Nautilus, which has a distinct style, a bit of a retro style. And then in the back, you have Star Tours and Captain EO at the time, which have a little bit more of a classic, I want to say kind of Tomorrowland, but maybe not as futuristic as Tomorrowland look. How, how did you make all those designs work together for the land? Well, the, the exterior architecture design was really meant to be, meant to represent kind of, you always kind of want to give a visual story to what goes on the inside. But the, the intent wasn't necessarily to, to make it old architecture or to make it um, nostalgic. The idea was to create a visual sense and then not make it, if there's such a word as timeful, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make it timeless, timeless, okay? And there's a trick that I use to do that. And that is, um, I'll come back to it in a second. But, but essentially, um, what I wanted to do was, I really like the idea. And, and, and this was kind of formed the way Disneyland works. You know, once you buy your ticket to go to Disneyland, you go through those two tunnels and their portals. So you leave the outside world behind, you never see it again you know, with the berm and all that. You don't see Anaheim, you don't see that. You just go through these portals. So I wanted the same thing. If you see that curving walkway and there was also a sidewalkway that came into the land, I wanted you to I wanted you to be separate from the rest of the park. And, and you know, I mean, they do the same thing of the castle. They seem to do the same thing. The gateway at Adventureland and the, and the fort um, does the same thing. I mean, all, all of them have the same way. You go through a portal where you leave the world behind and you and you go into a new a new place. So... So that was number one. Number two, here's the challenge when you think about Tomorrowlands. The traditional Tomorrowlands, like looking at Disneyland's Tomorrowland. <clears throat> Disney's Tomorrowland, uh, when you think about it, 
um, if you walked into um, that Tomorrowland, um, you saw the people mover. Then you saw the center tower with the rocket jets on it. Then you saw, I'm going back time in time, Skyway going by. And then you see the monorail going through. And then you see Autopia. Then you see the submarines. And then you see earlier days, you had motorboats. So Tomorrowland on that guise is basically fundamentally a land on the move. You know, we're moving, we're grooving. You had um, the um, um, carousel theater rotating. I mean, it was great. There's energy. You want, you know, one of the things we're also proud of talking about is in terms of Disney is your storytellers. But remember, when you're creating a theme park, your story, you're telling stories without words. It's a visual storytelling process. You have to tell a story that way. So as Tomorrowlands began to um, develop, all of the all that animation went away. You know, you, you know, you still have the rocket jets in the Magic Kingdom, but Space Mountain, spectacular attraction, number one, fantastic, right? It's in a building; you don't see anything. All these things started like getting isolated. Star Tours, Captain EO. I'm like, so I, I was like, okay, how do how do we do this? I need to get some energy in this place. You know, you can go. You, you, you take a picture of Star Tours, and you're like, Star Tours, and it's like, yeah, it looks like a really nice warehouse, okay? But you know what the show is, right? You can look at the Cinemagique at the time, it's what it was called, so Captain EO's there, and you're like, well, Captain EO, what is it, you know? So we can go around the circuit. So basically what I did is I did a circle, did a circle, and I said, I need something in the middle here. So, uh, you know, the Orbitron, ended up being, in my opinion, it's one of the rare attractions that is, that is a visual icon, a kinetic piece of art, and it's a ride you ride on. And it's... So what it did is that it kind of, everything kind of centered around it. There's a, there's a design motif for it. Everything kind of centers around it. It's like, and we put those planets all around the edge, you know? And so it's, you're, you're kind of, it's kind of a visual metaphor for pulling things together. So then on the outer ring, you had Visionarium. Now, I'm a big fan of the um, Griffith Park Observatory. You know, you've seen it in every science fiction movie in the world. And I said, oh, we're going to put this big dome there because it's going to be a round building. And then I stuck those big pylons on and I need more energy. So we did crackle neon on that. Okay. Then, okay, now, all right, what are we going to do? I've got to, oh, uh, and just so that people know when you when you're in charge of designing a land you have responsibilities such as such as making sure you stay on budget and making sure you adhere to a program the program talks to you about if we have a food facility you have to have so many meals per hour if you have attractions they have to have so many people per hour so you have to manage all this you're juggling all this stuff all the time so we had basically their tomorrowland quote unquote the normal tomorrowland terrace which is their big dining areas in in the castle parks. We have one at, you know, Walt Disney World and I mean, the Magic Kingdom there, the Tomorrowland has and Tomorrowland Terrace here at Disneyland and all the other ones do too. So I thought, well, this would be great. We have 50,000 square feet we have to fill up. And it's going to be a big entertainment stage. We're going to put this, you know, dining facility in here. And so we're going to do this. So, I mean, it, it didn't take long to say, well, let's just build kind of a big metalwork aircraft hangar. And we'll hang, you know, and Tony Baxter had done Discovery Bay and he had 
you know, the Hyperion airship coming out of the, the big gantry, I said, well, I, you know, I'm lifting this. I'm, you know, that's, that's a done deal. And the idea was when you come down Main Street, okay, and you look to Discovery Land, okay, you don't see the people there because all that rock work hides the people. But what you do see, and it's typical of what we did in all of Disneyland Paris, is that we created icons. So people, you know, it's like Paris, you know, you have weenies at the end of boulevards, right? So we had, you know, I had the Orbitron, but mostly you see the Hyperion, you know, um, it, it's the reason why, you know, with multiple languages that it's better to have icons. That's why we have Skull Rock and pirate ships and, and I had the X-Wing fighter and the Hyperion airship and we've got the big thunder tower right in the middle of adventure or of, 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 of Frontierland and you have the tree and the skull rock and so we want we created all these visual icons to connect everything together so so that's you know so now i've got okay now i've got this big giant hangar and i knew also that when we went to go build a thing it was all going to build off site so when we came in it was just like a big you know lego set they built and got the whole thing framed up in about a week made everybody else look bad <laughs> Made everybody else look like, oh, so you guys are ahead of us. No, no, it was the construction. I mean, believe me, you can build that faster than you can build a castle. Um, so, um, so now I have this Orbitron, going back to that, and and in each one of the colors actually had all the colors in the land had to match. So you have this bronze and brass and all that stuff. But I didn't want everything to look kind of old fashioned. So if you recall, if you go there and look. A ringed everything, almost a lot of the land is ringed in neon. So it kicks it out of one kind of visual metaphor and kicks it into something else. And so again, the idea was to make these things not some old, you know, dusty museum thing, but rather something that's has a lot of energy and the art direction ends up having, you know, neon, which is like, like this is crazy. Those crackle neon tubes in front of visionarium you know really gathered got your attention up there you know it lit up the whole place but it looked it represented energy it was like this is power this is energy this is what this was this whole time machine was going to take and so you're not saying what it is but you imply what the art direction is going to be and how that was going to be so um the other thing that i ended up doing um was that Space Mountain was not there uh, in Discovery Land in opening day. It wasn't there. So, but I never like lands that look like, oh, there's a big hole in the land. Where's all this gonna, you know, where are we going with the future? So I put this big berm, had designed this whole big berm around it. And we had these berm, what we call berm structures with kind of more, kind of a theme of Orbitron with all these globes and lighting underneath it. So, you know, it always looked finished. You know, you had to walk, you know, between that and heading back to Star Tours, you're walking back the backside of Videopolis and um, heading to Captain EO and, and Star Tours. And so you're walking around all that, but it just looks like, oh, the park. You know. Later on, when we started building Space Mountain, people were like, when it started going vertically above the berm, they're like, where did that land come from? It's like, ah, it was always there. <laughs> you just had to uh, make sure it wasn't you know, taken. And so there was um, a, a lot of development that was going on and the company was getting nervous that we didn't have enough capacity. So we actually went out and 
Marty had a meeting saying, oh my God, what are we gonna do? We need more capacity and we need to get it fast. So that's where we got Utopia, Utopia came in. And then um, no one actually knew this except I knew this and they were all like, oh my God, we're what are we gonna do? And I go, well, you know, the way we oriented Star Tours for opening day, there were gonna be four bays. So, you know, I said, I got an idea. Why don't we just add two more bays? which gives you another thousand per hour, or 800 capacity, you know, it was like, so we did it, you know, we did that. It, it had no impact on the park, had no, you know, they might've had to move the service road behind it, but they just pushed two more bays out and it gave you more capacity. So that, you know, that worked out really well. That worked really well. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's kind of how we kind of, um, kind of gathered the theme of when Autopia came in, I'll just tell you one thing related to that. I was like, what in the world are we gonna do? How do we do a, you know, a Jules Verne car? And so I didn't wanna do that. So what it did is, again, I had a great team. We sit and talk about these ideas and throw things out. And, and in this particular case, the one vision that I, the, the visions that you think about, what's the greatest thing about automobiles is if you go back to the 1930s and you look at those popular science and popular mechanics magazines, and they were out of these beautiful renderings on the top of, someday you'll be able to drive from New York to Los Angeles on a super highway. It was also part of the magic highways ideology, you know, that dream of that. So that's why when we put posters out there and we put, mirror, uh, excuse me, uh, billboards out there, they had that whole kind of 1930s look to it. And so, um, so that was kind of that future, that automobiles future look of the 1930s was that. So each one had their own identity. And um, as far as I'm concerned, I, you know, I'm not sure every, everybody gets all the nuances of that. Um, maybe they do, maybe they don't, but, um, but, but there's a rationale and a reason. And that's that, that story driven process is what I was talking about earlier that I think really does help and, and kind of grounds you. So it gives you confidence as to what, you, what, what you're gonna do. And, especially when you're spending a lot of money and you have a lot of people working on it. You want to make sure you're right. <laughs> so. Join us next time for part two of our discussion with Team Delaney, where we'll talk about creating all the Discoverland attractions and especially a long section on Space Mountain from the Earth to the Moon.